Welcome to episode 198 of Soccer Works, where we take a look at how soccer works in the U.S. and around the world. Welcome to this Soccer Works Roundtable series, live at the bar of the U.S. Soccer AGM. This is part one with Chris Kessel and Mickey Turner. All right, so I've got uh, Chris Kessel from West Virginia and Mickey Turner all the way from Seattle joining us. Good evening. Athletic. Say hey, Chris. Thank you for having me. So we are literally having Soccer Works, a roundtable edition at the bar of the U.S. Soccer AGM Hotel, and we are just going to talk about whatever comes to mind. So buckle up and uh, enjoy the ride. So look, I'm just going to I'm going to come in and state the obvious from the top. There are a lot of eyeballs on us sitting over <laughs> here at this table <laughs> having a chat, wondering what in the heck are these guys doing? So I just want to ask Chris first for you, what's, um, what has been kind of your big takeaway from today? You know, I think uh, the takeaway from today is, is that... Uh, there are a lot of people here who are angry at how things run and they feel powerless and they feel like things are never going to change and uh, they're really upset about how soccer is being governed in the country right now and then there's another subset of people who are perfectly happy with how everything's running So do you think the number of people that are upset, are they equal to the people that are happy with how things are? Are there there more of those people who are upset? What do you think? I think that there are more people who are willing to come out and just blatantly say that they're upset this year than there was last year. Really? I think that last year a lot of people were being very political about it and they were kind of keeping everything close to their chest. And uh, this year it's a lot easier to get people in casual conversation to say, hey, this sucks. Wow. Mickey, what what have you seen? You've been in and out of a lot of meetings today. I know you were covering the Athlete Council at one point today. What what, what have you, what have been like your big observance from from today's AGM? So this is my first uh, AGM that I've gone to. Uh, Obviously, I I wish I would have gone to the uh, soccer election last year. Um, And so uh, that's kind of where my opinion, I guess, is informed, at least uh, at the start, uh, based on the chaos that was going on last year. Uh, It's not been nearly the same this year. Um, And so I've learned a lot about, you know, how governance is run in U.S. soccer. And it's definitely my my thought is that it's 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 definitely run top down. Okay, it seems to be. And this may you guys can tell me a little bit about how it was last year or in years past. But it seems to be a lot of uh, you know, Carlos Cadero or whoever the president is and those uh, higher-ups basically making their way from one council meeting to another, going over whatever they need to do to uh, answer questions from the uh, you know, council members. Um, and then that's pretty much it. So they'll come in, they'll make a little presentation, uh, you know, answer questions, and then they kind of take off, head back up. To Valhalla, uh, where they tend to tend to reside as as, as the higher ups, and I don't know if that uh, matches up with what's been in the past. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised because that seems to be the way that the federation works these days. Um, and so, on the heels of the U.S. Uh, men's national team missing the World Cup, that was obviously kind of the overriding issue sure. uh, that kind of informed the elections last year with that kind of in the past, and now you've got Ernie Stewart in for the men. Um, I don't know if you were in the uh, Athletes Council uh, when they were going over this, because I know you showed up a little later, uh, but they talked a little bit about the women's national team and uh, getting a general manager in place for for the ladies um, on that side. Um, So that was at least some news that that came out of it without having an election to kind of, you know, you know, run back and forth and talk to sources and, you know, do lots of reporting without that kind of, you know, thing that's, you know, just hovering over the whole uh, general meeting 
I was just kind of looking for interesting stories and interesting news bites uh, that were coming out of the thing. So uh, from that perspective, it was informative, uh, but I don't know if my opinion changed about what I thought the Federation was doing um, prior to this event or in years past. It seems about the same, and which kind of leads into what Chris was just talking about. It's about people being fed up with how things are run. Um, and so that's kind of where I, that's my kind of general impression about the event as a whole. Right. So both of you guys, like Chris, I know last year was your first AGM and Mickey, this is your first AGM this year. Do you, being at this event, right? And I'll, I'll, I'll go with you, Chris, being at this event, um, for you now, your second year in a row, do you feel like coming here, things are getting done? Is it action-oriented? Is it a lot of, you know, whining and complaining? Or, you know, do you, do you see um, positive, you know, solutions that are going, okay, hey, here's what, we, here's what we can do. Here's how we can work together. Like, when you, when you have a meeting, right? So let's say it's um, a USASA Region 1 meeting because you, you're in West Virginia, so you're Region 1. Like, those kind of meetings, are they functional? Are they helpful? Is it... What's your impression of that? They are uh, not very functional. Okay. There is quite a bit of dysfunction within um, the, uh, the smaller meeting groups. You know, there are a lot of problems that probably should be mediated during uh, outside conversations before we come to a meeting like this. Like, um, it's uh, a lot of the issues that exist between the organizations need to be, like, like literally mediated. Like, somebody need they know... Everybody knows there's XYZ problem, you know, that exists between certain, you know, organizations or about a certain issue or whatever. And it just seems to me that there isn't the level of communication that there needs to be. So everybody sort of waits for this meeting or the other one of the other national meetings and then they have these big conversations and that's not enough time, you know, an hour or a 30-minute conversation. That isn't enough time to work out all of this stuff. Like, just go ahead, have a conversation, include all the necessary parties, and uh, let's communicate and, and try to work through the issues. And we are all involved in the governance of the game in this country at whatever level we're at. So include all the other stakeholders in this problem, you know, whatever it is. I mean, obviously there's a multitude of problems people sure. are trying to talk about. Sure. You know, include all the stakeholders, go up a level, go down a level, you know, bring in other people that maybe have solved the problem similar to this somewhere else in the country. There's a lot of smart people here. Like, you know, that's one of the things. There's a lot of really smart people here that actually really, really care about the game and could help a lot of solutions for local problems, local governance issues, but we're not bringing the power of the the mass of people that are here to bear on all of these problems. Right. You know, we, all three of us were sitting at a table with some very smart gentlemen earlier, and, you know, they went over decades of history about how we got here, and, you know... You know, obviously they didn't have all the answers, but I mean, just talking through how we got here helped everybody at the table kind of go, okay, well, now that we know how we got here, it's easier to kind of see, well, maybe if we make a different decision now to, to go this other direction, we can help change a little something going forward. But right. if we don't bring all this knowledge and, and stuff to the table, you know, it ends up just being dysfunctional mess right completely Mickey what, what, are, what are your thoughts well I guess my question would be uh, you know kind of along the lines of what Chris said what uh, what are they bringing to the table at these meetings that's getting things moving forward are they making uh, these decisions at 
a high level and then just dropping them down like two commandments on the various you know council meetings or stakeholders or are they getting those people involved six weeks two months six months in advance and by that time there's been enough collaboration and a consensus has reached where this kind of thing is more or less a formality so right. should you be dealing should you be really arguing about all of this stuff at the AGM or should it have already been vetted for the last you know two three six months and it's more or less a formality uh, one of the examples it sounds like it actually worked was there were some changes that needed to be made to the US Open Cup uh, as far as teams getting, um, you know, how teams are designated, a new, how a new team comes in, a team that's just created, what right. level they come in at. Right. It sounds like on that level, they dealt with these things at least three or four weeks, months in advance. And so when they came in and made, had a vote, there wasn't any issues because everyone had already hashed out the problem. And so you get a unanimous vote because everyone knows where everyone's coming from. So. Are they doing those things when it comes to youth development, uh, the uh, adult leagues, and um, anything else? Or are they kind of trying to hash these things out the day right. before the meeting, and then you come in and you got you know 30 people asking questions, and then you don't get anywhere uh, because you, you haven't really you know gone through the steps that you need to go through? So uh, that's an interesting point, and you know, uh, you know, again, this being my first one, I can't speak to how it's been run in the past, but. Uh, it's, it'll be interesting to see if they're able to kind of move these issues earlier in the process so that there's a consensus reached earlier and then you're not having these types of problems where people aren't informed about what's going on or you get stuff dropped on you, you know, the day of the, before the meeting or five minutes before the meeting or during the meeting. Or during the meeting. Yeah, right. And, right. and you're like, what, what the hell? I had, have no, had no chance to review this amendment that you want to make uh, or you know submit to the bylaws or take something out and you know then you all hell breaks loose when right. you know someone's you know toes get stepped on so one of the things that that I have noticed in in last year's AGM and which which was completely different than this year's AGM last year's AGM um, for for anyone listening who who doesn't know, I, I ran Eric Winalda's campaign for for president of U.S. Soccer, and um, it was it was a different beast altogether. The AGM there was there was so much focus, hype, attention on the election. It was incredible. You know, it was incredible. You know, eight candidates, um, many of which had you know campaign staffs. I know we had a staff that was on site. We also had staff that were off-site, you know, remote, that we were in constant contact with, that were, you know, part of the team. Um, <clears throat> like, that was all about the election. I mean, everything else was secondary. All eyes were on the election. Every conversation was about the election. You were running one meeting to another worrying about who's going to get elected, who's not going to get elected, who's going to win, you know. Is, vote, is, vote counts. Right, you know, all these things. whipping up stuff, yeah. Whereas this year's AGM has been much more like casual. It's been John Mata. Mm -hmm. Come on, say hey. Come say hey. Just speak into the microphone right here. Okay. I don't, I Just say hey. All you gotta do is say hey. Good afternoon, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. How you doing? How's it going, John? Good, good, good. You enjoying yourself? Always. Always. If I didn't have fun, I wouldn't be here. So. For those, everyone listening, John Mata is the president of U.S. Adult Soccer, and you just won re-election. Well, as a adult commissioner. Adult commissioner. Today. Today, but I mean like oh, yeah. as president, it, yeah. right? Back president in the fall? was in September. In September. And is that a four-year term? Two. Two-year term. So every two years you have to run? So everybody who's out in the audience or who's listening, who's in adult soccer, Vote for John any chance you get. He's one of the best ever. See, and that's how you get the, the I love, I love. The problem is these guys don't vote. Everybody yeah. votes here. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, you never know. In a that's year or true. two, they might be, be in, a, in right. And we need more people involved, right? We I need agree. more people, right? So, so if you get involved, vote for John. He's a great guy, right? I'm going to go on and do his campaign ad right See, now. That's right. 
That's right. Keep up the great work, John. Thank you. Thank you for stopping by. So so that was John Mata, guys. He is the the president of U.S. Adult Soccer. And uh, we're glad that he he said hey. Um, And and so back to to the conversation, like, Last year was completely different. This year seems more relaxed. Yeah. More chill. Even not having been there last year, yeah, you, the vibe was just completely different. Completely yeah, yeah. different, right? And um, in that relaxation, I think, Chris, something you, you mentioned a, a couple of min- minutes ago is that I think that relaxation has allowed people to relax to the point that they're just kind of like speaking their mind. Like, I've had so many people um, come up to me. You know, I, I walked into the hotel last night, and I had several people like on the way in, like, what are you doing here? Like, talking to people, they were saying, hey, just asking questions. And then the more that I've interacted with voters, delegates, people with the state associations, etc., who have said like, man, I wish this was different, or I wish this was changed, or I wish this... And, and so I, I have definitely sensed that, that relaxed feeling kind of give people a sense of freedom to kind of speak up and, um, you know, and, and really kind of share, hey, this is what I'd like to see, or, I, you know, I would like to see this improved, or, you know, whatever. Um, I, I saw a few different um, meetings today uh, one that I stepped in on was um, was the Athlete Council, Mickey, with you. Oh, we got Mr. Chris Heights. Chris, say hey. Right here in this microphone. Say hey. Who am I saying hey to? To the podcast audience. Just say Hello. hey. Is there, is there a podcast audience? There is a podcast audience. Beyond the four my people mother, sitting here? My mother. Oh. And- my grandmother's, God rest their souls, that they're gone. But my mother and my wife... And my mother-in-law. There's at least They're three people right in this now? world that, that, that will listen. Hello, the three ladies of Daniel's life. Thank you. Thank you. I wish I could say you're very lucky, but instead I will commiserate with you. Yes, Chris is the best when it comes to uh, Debbie Downer over here. Yeah. He's Chris <laughs> Debbie Downer Heights. Right? Right? Thanks for stopping in, Chris. See you guys. So, like, the the... The AGM, to me, has a different feel this year than last year, right? And that that feeling this year, there's part of it to me where there's this kind of feeling of resignation, like, uh, you know, this is just kind of what we're stuck with. But then there's another part where I sense a lot of people are like, you know what? I don't like the way things are, and I'm not going to remain silent anymore. I'm just going to start talking. I'm going to start sharing. I'm going to start reaching out. And Chris, there was, there was one thing that I think um, would be helpful going forward that I hope a lot of people like yourself who are involved in state associations, maybe, maybe there's somebody listening who's thinking about getting involved with state associations or an organization that can affect change. And that is this idea of creating a caucus, right? So share share a little bit about kind of what your thoughts are on creating a reform-minded, growth-minded caucus for U.S. soccer. So uh, a lot of the conversations that I've had today, uh, I've broached the subject with people, and um, it's basically we believe in American soccer. We believe in its potential. We believe that if change is made, we can reach the potential that American soccer has, which we aren't reaching right now. And what do you think that is? What do you think the potential of American soccer is? I mean, I think that American can be one of the top nations in the world for men's soccer, and women's soccer can be so amazing that we will be untouchable. You know, right. Whereas we're one of, you know, we're the best or one of the best. We're at the top, you know, but we can be so great at women's soccer that like everybody else is playing for second all the time. Sure. You know, and I really think that we can be there. I mean, we have the sporting culture, you know, we have, you know, 
the 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 infrastructure, the money, you know, to to get there. And um, and people love the game. I mean, we have millions of players and millions of youth that play, and you know, big cities and stadiums. I mean, we have everything except for proper governance. And um, so one of the ideas is is to have a caucus and. And it's basically to get like-minded people that are involved with governance of soccer in this country, no matter the level you're on, whether you are a delegate, a voter here at the AGM, or if you are at, at the state level and you can affect change in your state, you know, to, to stay in contact with each other, to share information, to, um, to uh, work together to affect broad broadly effective change like if we go okay so this is what we're going to do we see this issue how are you all handling it in your state so that we can work to implement something that worked there other places so we can not only work to like fix these giant problems that i think everybody sees but also these small problems that if we don't communicate about them Nobody knows how to fix them. Everybody's trying to come up with their own solution, which is just reinventing the wheel. Like if, right. if, if you know, since Mickey's living in Seattle, if Washington has already solved the problem that we're having in West Virginia, why do I have to rack my brain for six months and try this and try that and maybe it didn't work and next year we try something else when all I had to do was talk to Mickey and go, right. man, that is a great idea. Like we're going to do that and it'll probably work. Right. You know, because as different as all of these communities are, I mean, a lot of the problems are the same, you know, and if you can look at how other communities that are maybe similar to yours or maybe even not similar to yours, but and see how problems are getting, you know, worked through, it'll be better for everybody. And and that's sort of the idea about having like minded, reform minded people all communicating with each other you know, and staying in constant contact with each other, you know, getting together. And then that way, when we come back to the AGM next year, we all have a plan. We all know what we want to do. Maybe we've worked together to come up with a bylaw or a policy change that we think can work. You know, like there's a policy, you know, there's a, a, a bylaw change up for vote tomorrow. Right. That Dr. Tom Moore from... Uh, Cal, Cal North, North, Cal North, Cal North has, has put forth that is, uh, you know, it's it's a good thing, you right. know, and um, as we all heard, you know, it's it's not as uh, far-reaching as the uh, the original version, unfortunately, that he had he and a bunch of other people, you know, I, I gave my input during the the creation of it, along with a bunch of other people, you know, right. It's not as far-reaching as that, but you know. A first step is a first step, and we don't get anywhere without taking a first step. Absolutely. I mean, look, you're not going to solve every problem overnight. As much as we would love to kind of snap our fingers, wave a magic wand, and think, you know, everything it can be fixed, you know, in, in, in a month's time or six months' time, it's just, it's not reality. Yeah. U.S. soccer is a federation. As an organization is so dysfunctional. And and I'm not I'm not trying to say that in a way that's uh, that is um, trying to be derogatory. I'm just saying if you look at it, if you were if you were an um, an organizational um, leader, expert, you know, that comes in a, a, a coach who kind of talks to organizations about how to run effective organizations, lead effective teams, you know, if you were a, a leadership person and you were to analyze the U.S. Soccer Federation, you would you would find so many areas where there are just massive dysfunctions, like leadership dysfunctions in terms of personnel, but also just systemic and structural dysfunctions, where lack of transparency, lack of bidding policy, uh, open bidding. Um, you know, just good governance issues, um, you know, conflicts of interest and the policies that surround conflicts of interest. 
And and Mickey, I know with with your background, I know you've been talking about a lot of these different aspects and elements. You've covered a lot with the the NASL case and some other stuff. Yeah. Kind of as you as you've been covering those different things, what what have you seen in the areas of governance? Has anything kind of been alarming, disturbing, surprising? Kind of what, yeah. what are your thoughts? All right, so I'd say the most, dis- uh, I don't know what I would call disturbing or surprising, but it may be a combination of both, dis- okay. dis- surprising, um, is probably in the area of the uh, training compensation solidi- solidarity payments. Okay. Um, gener- just because I think it's not even whether you agree with the principle of it or not, it's more that whatever your thoughts are on the process that U.S. soccer wasn't really following what the rules were just on a basic level. And by way of example, um, every player that goes through the Youth Development Academy um, or plays you know, youth soccer is supposed to have what's called a player passport, sure. which basically outlines uh, your name, date of birth, when you played for X Academy, and if you moved on from X Academy to Y Academy, the dates you did that, U.S. Soccer didn't even have that basic information. Right. Um, and so it basically, uh, you know, the case I'm obviously referring to is the uh, DeAndre Yedlin sure. Crossfire case uh, where Crossfire is trying to get solidarity, solidarity payments. One of the defenses that Tottenham raised in that lawsuit was basically U.S. Soccer's record keeping was so poor, we have them being Tottenham, we have no way of determining how much you would be eligible for in those payments in the event we agreed you were owed them at all. So right. uh, just their their record keeping was just not good enough to comply with the FIFA standards. And you just, you know, again, you have to wonder what they were doing for the past 10 years sure. when they knew this stuff was coming down the pike. And so um, just um, in the athletes council meeting today, they you know went over that pretty um, pretty in depth about how they've made some changes to that. Now they're trying to get all the players um, that play soccer in the United States for youth academies or what have you um, get them what are called FIFA ID cards, so you know their basic information that you know you know their names right you know when they're playing for teams you know right. their date of birth right and so you know and that has other implications too as far as you know making sure that kids are being trafficked across state lines and you know you know they're just disappearing without a trace because you don't know how to track uh, where they've gone so that kind of stuff is just stuff they should have been doing you know well since they were U.S. soccer was you know incorporated or you know de- you know you know, started sure, but at least, at least they're getting on that path now. But um, it's you know, it's way late. Well, you know, <laughs> the the point you're making right there is kind of what I'm talking about about the dysfunction, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So dysfunction doesn't doesn't just mean like you know, pure chaos or um, organizational mess from a standpoint of intentionally trying to screw things up. Yeah. But dysfunction also looks at like just lack of doing the ABCs. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Dotting I's, crossing T's, the basic base level, you know, responsibility of a federation. And right? that, you know, that's why they got into that mess because they weren't doing that stuff. You, you know, you're not checking the date of birth of somebody and now you've come to the point where now you've got a Premier League team, you know, you know, messing up with somebody's, you know, ability to get paid for developing players, and now, and then the one of the other things that's a result of that is if if they were to win that case, U.S. Soccer could be in a world of hurt because they're in non-compliance with FIFA, and maybe, uh, you know, Crossfire goes to uh, USO, uh, the U.S. Uh, Olympic Committee, and basically says, you know, you should pull their sanctioning, right? Um, because or FIFA for that matter, and says because you are so dysfunctional, because you were not doing what you needed to do on just a systemic level, why are you in charge of uh, professional or amateur soccer? Why are you a thing at this point anyway? Because you've proven that you aren't able to do what your um, your, your charter and your bylaws, um, what your remit is. And so, all because they weren't paying attention to these things, um, all because you couldn't um, be bothered 
to get somebody's player passport right, right. now you're in a situation where you know, your, your charter's at risk. Now, whether that's actually the case is another sure. issue, but totally just, just as an example, that's you know, how you know, a little snowflake turns into a snowball. Sure. So, so when, when you're looking at U.S. soccer, right, so you've got their responsibilities to FIFA, which is the, the international governing body of soccer, and then you have their responsibilities to the country, to the members domestically, right? And part of that responsibility you alluded to was to the U.S. Olympic Committee because U.S. soccer operates the Olympic program, right? So they, so they, they, they almost, in a way, serve two masters, right? You've got their main master of FIFA, but then domestically they also have to kind of Stay in the good graces of, of the U.S. You know, Olympic Committee or the USOC is, is what they're often referred to. So when you look at U.S. soccer and those responsibilities, when it comes to FIFA, there's not a lot that they have to do, right? No, I mean, not really. There's not a lot. So what FIFA you just, leaves them alone FIFA, anyway for the FIFA most part. Yeah. generally leaves them alone. But, like, the few responsibilities they have is... You know, making sure you know that they're operating their national teams in a FIFA-compliant way. You know, so that their players are legal, and if they're participating in tournaments or whatever, rosters, you know, administration stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have their their responsibilities to FIFA administration-wise with what you alluded to, which is the player piece of tracking the player passport and and all of that totally asleep at the wheel right yeah yeah i mean just for the last 10 years uh, yeah well i guess forever yeah we've never done it yeah it's not 10 years we've never done any kind of admin work on on that level unless it was a player that was going to go overseas and then we were going to handle that one guy's case right Mm -hmm. so like before there was Yedlin, let's say it was Dempsey. Dempsey. That's right? the other. That's the other case. So study. we're gonna get Dempsey overseas. What do we got to do to get Dempsey overseas? Let's fill out this paperwork. Boom, it's done. We're gonna ignore the other millions of players, right? We're just gonna handle that one guy because he's going over to Fulham, right? And and now we see this with the younger players that are in Germany and 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 Pulisic and Sargent and McKinney and Adams. Um, you know, Timothy Weah, you know, all these guys that are, that are overseas where, you know, obviously their, plas- their, their, their passports are, are handled and all of that kind of things. But all of these other players that may not be marquee names are in the past have been just ignored, right? Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. And the, it's the crazy thing. Well, it's not crazy. It, it, it makes sense. It's, it's somewhat cynical, but it makes sense, is now that MLS teams, just to use MLS as the example, because they're the top domestic league, sure. they're the ones that are putting the money into the into their youth academies at this point, right. their reserve teams. So now you're starting to see a bunch of players come up uh, and, oh, hey, we can sell this guy for $3 million, $13 million, $30 million, or even $500,000. Right. And so now you've got to have those ducks in a row and so now MLS sees it as they need to, you know, and U.S. Soccer by extension, um, they need to get those uh, those player passports or FIFA IDs, whatever they're calling it these days. Um, but yeah, they didn't care about that stuff ten years ago when the academy system was just starting to get developed because they weren't developing players um, right. to go right. overseas, um, and it was not worth the hassle uh, of registering properly two million players to just deal with the four that are going overseas now. Right. And so now, but now it's not only is it more than four, it's for more than, you know, you know, a couple million dollars. Now you're talking about Pulisic, who goes and gets sold for $73 million and now has, uh, you know, his uh, old academy youth development team uh, looking at a potential check for seven or $800,000. Right. And once you mar- multiply that by five, six, seven players, even if it's not $73 million, if it's seven million, that's still a good chunk it, of change. It's adding it, up, yeah. And and ultimately, that that looks at the kind of the third piece 
of what U.S. soccer has as a responsibility to FIFA, which is to be a member in good standing, which is, you know, in other words, FIFA compliance is a, is a phrase I use a lot, uh, just meaning that you're going to be a federation of FIFA. That means that you're going to comply with all of the rules of FIFA unless you have a domestic law that intervenes, right? Because FIFA does not have the legal ability to come into the United States government and say, no, you can't pass that law. You have to do right. You can't. The U.S. government is going to tell them to go yeah. jump off a, a cliff. And to be fair, every country in the world yeah, yeah, is yeah. going to do that, right? So FIFA doesn't have that. So they, So there is a stipulation that basically says... You know, and I used this example earlier today. If the if the U.S. government, if Congress passed a law that said that you could not be a professional soccer player until you turned 21, then FIFA could not come in and say, well, we don't care. You can sign 17-year-olds to pro contracts. They wouldn't be able to change it. U.S. law would say only 21 years old and above, and, and that's what assuming they have to that, Yeah, obviously assuming that kind of law passed constitutional scrutiny. Correct. For the sake of argument, This yeah, is just the, hypothetical yeah, Assuming example. that it was legal, um, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, no, nobody under 21 could sign a pro contract. Right. FIFA would have no recourse. They would just have to but, honor it. Yeah, they would just, their option is basically to lobby Congress to change it, Correct. change the law at that point, and that's right. all they could do. Sure. So, in that, in that scenario, Right? That's the only out or exemption from FIFA compliance that U.S. soccer is granted, U.S. law. So in U.S. soccer's bylaws, this, this kind of third piece of U.S. soccer's responsibility as a member of FIFA, right? the, the responsibility of the federation to be a FIFA-compliant member, and yet... We don't have solidarity payments. We don't have training compensation. We don't have, you know, promotion and relegation or the principle of sporting merit as FIFA, you know, has set forth in in their bylaws and policies of which US soccer is a member. There is no US law that prohibits FIFA compliance in these areas. Um, there there has been you know, Mickey, you, you've alluded to... Yeah, we argued a little bit about this off-air. Uh, off-air, off, off yeah. Right, <laughs> about the, the idea that U.S. soccer might make the, the claim that, well, there's a threat of a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the bylaw says. The bylaw doesn't say there's a threat of legal action. It, it says unless U.S. law intervenes. So in the absence of a standing law, which there is no standing law, I think all three of us can agree that there is no standing law that prohibits promotion and relegation because it exists in U.S. soccer in inside of leagues around the country, whether it's youth leagues or some adult amateur leagues. Like, there's some there. But the Federation has not created promotion and relegation as a national system. And then there's also this absence of solidarity payments and training compensation not been enacted haven't been doing the paperwork, etc. So this third responsibility of the Federation to FIFA is not being handled. You know? So Chris, you're in West Virginia. You've got you've got a, you've got league. Uh-huh. You've got clubs. Uh-huh. You've got players. You've got coaches. Uh-huh. You've got all these things. What would FIFA compliance mean to your club, your local community club if if a if Christian Pulisic didn't come from PA Classics but came from your club and you were standing to gain seven to eight hundred thousand dollars in payments what would that mean to your ability to operate your club next year what would that do <laughs> if if somebody uh, quad I don't know a factor of fifteen thousand percent of the budget that we do yearly. I think that would help uh, just just a tad, you know. No, I look. the The thing is, is if 
communities, I, I say this all the time, like if communities are allowed to hope and if they're allowed to believe, they're going to buy in. Like, you know, a lot of people that, uh, that live in larger cities, I don't think that they really kind of get why like high school sports are so big in these medium and small sized towns. Like, I mean, I've went, I personally went to high school basketball games that there were 13,000 people at because two guys from rival high schools were both going to go be big time division one basketball players. Right. And football the same way, 10,000. I mean, we've all seen Texas high school football. Yeah. You know, so let's transpose that deep so, so real quick, meaning. I want to stop you real quick. Go just, ahead. Just a funny aside. You brought up Texas high school football, right? Yeah. 10, 15, 20,000 fans. That is, the U.S. national team played in Phoenix a month ago for yeah. 7,000 fans. Yeah. <laughs> 7,000 7, fans. 7,000 fans. Right. Crazy. Yeah. And, you know, if you allow these communities to uh, participate in something that they're actually able to believe in and hope and invest in and say, this is a clear cut pathway. Like every other sport in the United States, like you're allowed to see the clear cut pathway to the top. Like uh, I, I, I gave this story. I, I think I, I've told it to you before. I've wrote about it. Um, you know, I uh, didn't know anything about football. My best friend was a Division II All-American running back, and he um, asked me to come coach football with him. He was like, you're great with kids. When I yell at them, you tell them they're, go they're going great. Good cop, bad cop. I was like, you know what, Mike? I can handle that. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And we were on the west side of Charleston. We drew kids from three large housing projects in the poorest community in the poorest country in the state. I mean, the poorest state in the country. And uh, after coaching for a few years, the kids started, you know, going through high school. They won a state championship. A bunch of these boys got to play in college. And there was a clear development pathway that the kids and their families and the community could see and believe in. You played 11 and 12 year old major league football. Then you went to the middle school. Then you went to the high school. Then you went to college. And if you were good enough and you worked hard enough, you could be in the NFL. At that time, right after that, I was coaching in a different neighborhood, soccer. And it was a lot of really, really, really wealthy, you know, girls. And uh, after a couple years, I was like, so how exactly, I'm trying to wrap my head around, how do you get from here to the top? There is no pathway. There's nothing for the parents to believe in. There's nothing for the kids to believe in. There's nothing for the community to believe in. So it's just disjointed, jumbly mess. So it, the, the irony wasn't lost on me that poor kids that play other sports have a way to the top that everybody can see and they can invest in as people and people can invest in them. That's the reason why you see coaches in basketball and baseball and football and all these other sports dedicate so much time because they know that if they invest their time, they the, the kids can be rewarded for it. There is no reward. If I donate, um, you know, 5,000 hours working with these 20, 30 girls and they all become amazing players and then, okay, now what's next? There is nothing next. I could be setting on, you know, three Mia Hams and two Julie Foudies and like nobody would ever know. Right. You know, so... If it what if U.S. soccer wasn't this jumbled mess and and merit mattered, everybody would be able to invest in their community, their kids, the players, the coaches, the referees, and everything, and people would believe in the game, and they could see their pathway to the top. I mean, like I think it's as simple as that. Like currently, there's no reason for the average American soccer parent of a 10-year-old kid to believe. Like, what's the, like, what are you believing in? 
Right. Oh, one day we can drive four hours to go to DA practice. Like, I mean, is that what we're believing in? Right. Like, you know, like that's what we're trying to sell people right now is, is that that's the dream. And that's not a dream to me. That's a hassle as a soccer parent. That's a hassle. I agree. I would say, uh, just, I guess, briefly to follow up on, uh, on just kind of the pathway and it kind of explains the lack of enthusiasm. Uh, Daniel, you talked about the, uh, attendance for the national team games, which is for friendlies, I should say, which has been absolutely awful. Uh, and it's been awful actually for about four years, excluding, uh, either high profile friendlies or qualifying. They haven't, you know, they barely draw over 10,000 for those games anyway. Um, and I think that just kind of speaks to the malaise that the so, uh, soccer, so what is U.S. That? soccer, what is world causing the, the malaise? I mean, again, because this goes prior to the U.S. failing to qualify for the World Cup, so we're talking like uh, 2015, okay, uh, 2015 or so, uh, when they were drawing those terrible crowds. Um, it's a it's a good question because you know coming off the 2014 World Cup, there should be no reason for that. Um, because they came off a uh, you know a round of 16 appearance, uh, there was a lot of you know pop you know there was a lot of buzz. Tim Howard you know standing on his head against uh, Belgium, um, and then you know going in you know 2017 when they were you know I guess the Gold Cup was going on, but in any case there was not anything really overly interesting, and as a result the uh, the attendance just plummeted. Uh, I suppose it was understandable coming off of failing to you know qualify for the World Cup. Sure. Um, and then, you know, obviously, the U.S. soccer elections, I'm certainly, I think, said it had something to do with just the kind of lack of enthusiasm, especially from the grassroots, uh, many of whom uh, wanted to see major change. And when that happened, I'm sure that had something to do with uh, the fact that uh, there was just a lack of interest. Uh, and so it's an excellent question. I mean, the other issue is obviously, you know, Putting a game in Phoenix in that massive stadium, coming off that was just a terrible idea in the first place. Why are you going to a 60,000 seat stadium for a friendly against a non-Mexico, Brazil, Argentina team? I mean, I get you know those are just kind of decisions that U.S. Soccer, the Federation, should you know should be able to see from a mile down the road. Right. That you're never going to sell more than 15,000 people on a Panama USA January cup camp cupcake C team lineup. I mean, sure. you know, those are just, you know, you would think those are just kind of common sense things. And the tickets were like a fortune. Yeah. And then the other thing, yeah, obviously the ticket prices, ticket prices, ticket prices were insane. Um, and so a lot of this just seems to be common sense to me. Um, and then, you know, the one thing about that is, uh, you know, so Neil Galati, who's an economist, uh, you know, uh, famously, uh, talked about some of the things. Would you rather sell forty thousand seats, or yeah, forty thousand tickets at twenty dollars a pop, or twenty thousand at forty dollars a pop? Obviously, you would. You know, his theory was, yeah, of course, we'd rather sell forty thousand at twenty. But his theory was basically, you know, if you cut the price in half, you're not going to get twice the amount of people. But maybe you should, you know, take that hit and just make it more accessible. Um, and so those are those are all kind of issues that. Uh, the Federation has been dealing with, again, for a long time, even before the, the 2018 failure. Sure. So, so if, we, if we look at some of that, right, so let's, let's, let's park there for just a second. It's real easy to get caught up in identifying problems. Yeah. You know, any, any middle manager or employee can tell you how screwed up your company is. They can tell Captain you. Captain like, hindsight. Right, right, yes. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. So... I want to, instead of being, you know, just critical, negative, or, or, or overly critical and negative, I want to just, like, park here for a second and look at solutions. So, for example, if you're looking at the, the national team, like, what are some things that you think would um, improve attendance, improve excitement, improve engagement with communities, with fans, you know, supporters. Like, what are what do you think 
or some things. You mentioned the ticket prices. I think that's, what's, uh, that's what's a good place. To, that's, that's a good place to start. Just generally speaking, okay, is you know uh, reduce the prices and take a little bit of a hit on the you know on your revenue. Um, the Sounders, for example, just announced that they're selling ten dollar tickets uh, to college students. Okay, and that's a great way to get you know uh, younger people in. You, sure, you get them, you reel them in, you hook them. And then, you know, once they graduate from college and they've got, you know, disposable income. Sure. They're going to become most likely season ticket holders. So that's, you know, that's obviously just a basic thing they could do. And the Federation could certainly do that um, because what is the point of renting out a 70,000 seat stadium and putting only 10,000 people in there? Right. Um, or in the case of yeah. Phoenix, it was 7,000. Yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm overshooting <laughs> I don't want to give a 3,000 extra giving, fans yeah, because giving, it's... <laughs> It yeah. was bad. Yeah, it was. It was. It was awful. It was really bad. Yeah, and so, you know, again, I understand their position that you know, as an you know, Neil's an economist, and so I'm sure he understands that much more than I do. Um, but you know, it's just kind of common sense. So some of those things, and then you know, just kind of more community engagement. Um, you know, certainly getting into the rural low-income communities, giving some tickets away, getting people out there because those you know are the types of fans that you can develop over time. And then, obviously, some of that stuff also has to do with getting those kids involved in soccer at a younger age and keeping them there. And I know that was a lot of discussion. Uh, you know, I th- I'm sure it was throughout uh, today's uh, meetings. Is you know the fact that U.S. soccer is losing kids, you know, around 10 years old, um, and they're not, you know, they're either not, they're either going to other sports, although that's not necessarily the case either. But they're just not interested. In soccer at that point, and they're playing Fortnite, uh, right? On a, you know, on a nightly basis, and so some of the things that they can they need to do there, as far as making it more accessible, we talked about you know developing more futsal courts and things like that. Use some of that 150 million dollar surplus um, to get into communities and start you know doing uh, you know issuing more grants. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff they can do there, and I know they like the U.S. Soccer Foundation. Uh, that's obviously another issue, you know, another lawsuit uh, that they're currently dealing with. But I, I'm hearing that that's going to get actually settled uh, relatively soon. It sounds like they're doing well as far as negotiations. But you know, not fighting with your 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 members or your or your allies right. uh, would be you know an excellent step and get out from under you know the 13 lawsuits. Uh, that they're currently involved in. It's not 13, but but it it's feels more like than five. It. It's more than five. <laughs> it feels like it. Thanks for listening to this SoccerWorks Roundtable Series live at the bar of the U.S. Soccer AGM. This has been part one of a conversation with Chris Kessel and Mickey Turner. I'd like to thank Chris and Mickey for joining the show. You can learn more about SoccerWorks by visiting wrk.mn forward slash SoccerWorks. Until next time.